Hub and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing all right. Thanks for asking. I was talking with a friend of mine the other day. We were taking a lackadaisical ride on our back in the daysicle, if you will. And he brought up something that I haven't thought of in years, which was that when you used to text using a BlackBerry, you had to switch back and forth between capitalization and punctuation. And a lot of times, if you thought you had made that switch and hadn't, then instead of making the three dots for ellipses, you would end up typing three capital M's. So I've got a new theory. The screenplay for the movie Sling Blade wasn't written by Billy Bob Thornton in the 90s. It was texted to him on a BlackBerry from the mid-2000s, and that's why every time there's a pause, he goes, mmm, because he was trying to type out ellipses, but uh, screwed up and did capital M's instead. I knew you'd slip up eventually and reveal yourself to be a time traveler, Billy Bob Thornton, but now I'm on to you. Also, stop texting yourself screenplays and go kill Hitler, you doofus. Mm. Oh, great, now he's got me doing it. You know, sometimes I wonder why this show isn't more popular. You don't suppose my timely references to the movie Sling Blade and texting on Blackberries might have anything to do with it, do you? Nah. But just to be on the safe side, let's move on to more contemporary matters. A 40-year-old comic book. Now, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Mark Paglia. Stephen Strange was bad at making friends on account of his personality. So one day he sought like-minded folks from the fringes of polite super-society. He scoured the earth for other misfits, wondering, who will my new friends be? Why the friendless Green Hulk, exiled Norrin Rad, and the ornery old man Mackenzie. Emotionally inept, none would ever admit how much they enjoyed this roving band. With its tacit camaraderie born of fighting Omegatron and the Six-Fingered Hand. Until some space-time jerks made them sad, saying, To save the Earth, you must stop this. No more being friends, no more hanging out. Now our friend Hub will read a synopsis. Thanks, Mark. New Defenders, number 126. December, 1983. State of the Union. Written by J.M. DeMatteis. Drotted by Alan Cooperberg. Inkted by Alan Cooperberg. Lettered by Janice Chiang. Colored by Paul Becton. And edited by Carl Potts and Anne Nascenti. New defensive lineup. Valkyrie, Beast, Gargoyle, Iceman, Moondragon, Angel, and guest starring Nick Fury. Previously in the Defenders. 
A group of nigh-omnipotent interdimensional space weirdos informed Doctor Strange, Namor, the Hulk, and Silver Surfer that unless they stopped palling around together, then the universe was totally fucked. Steve used his magical nonsense to confirm that the space weirdos were on the level, so he and the original Defenders decided to hang up their metaphoric hats and go their separate ways. Bye, Defenders! Fortunately, not unlike my dog Finley, the Marvel Universe abhors a vacuum. Just as the initial lineup of our titular non-team was packing up their mystical banker's boxes and clearing out their crime-fighting cubicles, Beast was attempting to implement his vision for a new team. The Hirsute Hero attempted to recruit former Avengers Vision and the Scarlet Witch. They declined to enlist, but the semi-retired supercouple did help Beast, Iceman, and Gargoyle beat up a trio of kidnappers sent by a clandestine cadre of crumbums called the Secret Empire, who were trying to abduct the Vision. The heroes turned the three would-be robot-nappers over to the international espionage agency, S.H.I.E.L.D. Then they scampered off to rural Ohio to attend the wedding of their former non-teammates Patsy Walker and Damon Hellstrom. Supervillains attempting to interfere with weddings is a long-standing comic book tradition, and Patsy's nuptials proved no exception. The hellacious Hellcat's asshole ex-boyfriend, Buzz Baxter, had injected himself with some rabid canine DNA for some reason, and was now going by the nom de guerre, Mad Dog. He and a force of mutant mercenaries, imaginatively named Mutant Force, had been hired by the Secret Empire to disrupt the wedding. Unfortunately for Buzz and his cronies, a group of guests consisting of Valkyrie, Gargoyle, Beast, Iceman, the high-flying former X-Man Angel, and Moondragon, a bald psychic space ninja who Odin had placed in Valkyrie's custody after she used her telepathic powers to enslave a planet and inadvertently murder her dad, banded together and beat the shit out of the super-villainous wedding crashers. Hooray! Once the matrimonial melee had concluded, Beast implored the band of buzz-beater-uppers to stay together as a super team, and with varying degrees of enthusiasm, they all agreed. And thus, the new Defenders was born. Gadzooks! What did S.H.I.E.L.D. do with the attempted kidnappers the gang turned over to them? Will Beast assume leadership of the team he's finally managed to assemble? And how will newcomer Angel prove he has what it takes to be a defender? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... They aren't exactly sure. Probably not. And the usual way. By angrily storming off and quitting the team. He's gonna fit in just fine. The new defenders head over to S.H.I.E.L.D.'s super-secret high-tech headquarters to have a little chat with Nick Fury and drop off Buzz and the members of Mutant Force they captured at Patsy's wedding. Beast is like, So you're sure you can keep these guys from escaping? One of them has dog powers of some kind. Nick Fury is like, Don't sweat it, Hank. S.H.I.E.L.D. has the best nonsense science in the business. No one ever has escaped from our custody, and nobody ever will. Beast is like, well, that's a relief. Say, where are you keeping Cloud, Seraph, and Harridan? Nick is like, who? Beast is like, the prisoners we turned over to S.H.I.E.L.D. last issue? You know, the super-powered ones who tried to kidnap Vision? Nick is like, you turned who over to what now? Gargoyle is like, 
Mr. Fury, are you saying you don't have the prisoners we turned over to you? Nick is like, no. Yes. Dang it. Stupid secret empire must have infiltrated our ranks and released some of our prisoners again. I hate that shit. Beast is like, I thought you said that no one had ever escaped from your custody. Nick Fury is like, yes, and I stand by that. They didn't escape. They were released. By double agents. Totally different thing. Gargoyle is like, uh-huh. Just out of curiosity, how many prisoners would you say have been released from your custody by double agents? Fury is like, today? Gargoyle is like, okay. I think we'd better get going. The gang leaves through one of the walls that has a weird hidden portal thing in it, and heads back to the brownstone they inherited from deceased billionaire-do-well-bird enthusiast Kyle Richmond. As they respectively fly, jump, and slide around on enormous slabs of ice, the heroes engage in some light banter. Angel and Iceman both think about how attracted they are to Moondragon. Angel unsuccessfully tries to hit on the follicle-free femme fatale, which Bobby finds so distracting that he slides into the side of a water tower. Oops. Beast starts to second-guess whether assembling this team was such a good idea after all. Meanwhile, at the Secret Empire's hidden fortress in Virginia's Smoky Mountains, a bunch of anonymous jerks wearing purple robes place a FaceTime call to their leader, a different anonymous jerk in a purple robe. One of the anonymous jerks addresses his boss and is like, Hey, number one, sorry Buzz and his mutant cronies fucked up so bad, but everything else is going just fine. Number one is like, It had better be number seven. Now bust those chumps out of shield jail for me so that I can order them to do some more evil stuff. Number seven is like, yeah, already on it. Okay if we murder a bunch of people in the process. Number one is like, whatever. I don't care about details. Just fucking do it, okay? He gets so worked up about not micromanaging that he knocks over his book about ancient Rome. Wait. Ancient Rome? Shit. Back at S.H.I.E.L.D. HQ, Nick Fury is stomping around, smoking a cigar, and wondering why the fuck a gruff, no-nonsense World War II army sergeant was put in charge of an international espionage agency when an ear-splitting alarm bell starts going off. Well, looks like it's time for S.H.I.E.L.D. to set their blank days without a catastrophic mishap sign back to zero. Oh, it was already at zero. Yeah, that tracks. Wonder if they even bothered buying the other numbers. Nick leads a team down to level L, where the security breach happened. Takes a little while to get there because whoever set the alarm also cut the electricity. Apparently, whoever or whatever is being kept down on level L was pretty bad news, so Nick is a little antsy as he repels down the darkened elevator shaft. Even so, the grizzled World War II veteran is unprepared for the carnage he encounters when he first turns on his flashlight. Five security guards have been torn limb from limb and are lying in pools of blood in an otherwise empty prison cell. That's probably a bad sign. Meanwhile, at the Defender's Brownstone, the gang is bored shitless. They engage in some light banter, while Angel and Iceman both think about how attracted they are to Moondragon. As he munches absentmindedly on his eighth hamburger, Beast is like, 
So I'm pretty sure I know who it's going to be, but just to make it official, we should probably select our team leader. Any nominees? Maybe somebody blue and covered in fur? Valkyrie is like, Yes, yes, I'm sure that either Nightcrawler or Super Grover would be an excellent leader, but seeing as they're not here, I nominate me. Beast is like, What? Val is like, Yes, I've been a defender forever and a warrior even longer than that. Odin handpicked me to command his immortal army of Valkyrior, which I did with honor. So I have, I don't know, rounding down, let's say, a thousand years experience leading a team of super-powered individuals? Beast is like, yeah, yeah, and all that's great, but here's the thing. I want to be leader. Valkyrie laughs in his face. The two start squabbling, and pretty soon everyone gets involved. Well, everyone but Moondragon, that is. The self-described goddess watches as the argument grows more heated with an amused smirk on her face. Eventually, Angel is like, You know what? Fuck this. You guys are a bunch of doofuses. Doofy? Whatever. I'm out of here. He takes to the skies and starts flapping around aimlessly. As he flies, Warren thinks to himself, I probably shouldn't have blown up like that, but I just wanted everyone to act like grown-ups for a change. In retrospect, maybe throwing a tantrum and running away might not have been the best way to illustrate that. It's just that I was finally starting to get my shit together, and I hoped that the new Defenders might be a place for me to demonstrate that. But everyone is being a dumb jerk for some reason. Also, what's with me hitting on Moondragon? I have a rad girlfriend named Candy Southern, who is objectively way too good for me. What's my deal? Hey, is that a Buick? That last is because a large green sedan just sailed through the air a few feet away from the financially fortunate flyboy. That car is followed by another. Warren decides to swoop down and investigate. Not too far away, the rest of the gang is out looking for Warren. As soon as he left, everyone realized that they were being a bunch of silly turds. Val is like, I am embarrassed at my behavior. Verily, I was being a real piece of shit. Moondragon is like, yes, good point. Before the sexy psychic space ninja gets a chance to agree with anyone else's self-deprecation, a whole bunch of police cars zoom by with their sirens blaring. The defenders figure this is the sort of thing that a new super team probably ought to check out and decide to tag along with the cops. Before long, they arrive at the source of all the commotion. A 40-foot-tall, muscly jerk in a yellow onesie is clutching Angel in one hand and smashing cop cars with the other. Well, okay then. The car crusher in question appears to have a fairly limited vocabulary, but from his gleeful, mostly monosyllabic exclamations, it seems as though his intent is to smash, kill, and eat, first Warren, then all the police officers. The defenders aren't crazy about this proposed course of action, so they attempt to intervene. As Beast and Iceman rush in to pry their pal from the monster's grasp, some captions fill us in on some details about the big fella's backstory. Turns out that the singlet-clad behemoth goes by the appropriate sobriquet, Leviathan. He used to be a S.H.I.E.L.D. scientist named Edward Cobert, who was working on a top-secret project for a fascist faction within the agency. 
This faction was of the opinion that superheroes were a menace as well as a threat, and that the government should make their own superpowered agents. Eddie and his buddies took that one step further and set out to engineer a being who would be able to destroy all other superheroes. Ed injected himself with whatever goop he and his pals invented, only I guess the formula was a little bit off, because while Ed was now ridiculously strong and huge, he was also a big old dummy who just wanted to wreck and kill everything. After his transformation, he killed like 50 people, none of whom were superheroes. So S.H.I.E.L.D. locked him up in a cell in level L for a few years. Then this morning, he got loose. Beast manages to goad Ed into throwing Angel at him like a lawn dart. Both heroes are a little shaken up from this ordeal, but at least Warren is free from Leviathan's grasp. Iceman tries to encase Leviathan in ice, and it works for a second or two, but then Eddie busts out and clobbers Bobby. Next, Val tries trading blows with the Brobdignation baddie, but finds that even her Asgardian might is no match for his. Moondragon tries to use her psychic powers on the gargantuan goofus, but Ed's brain is too mucked up to be manipulated. Also, Odin put a snap bracelet around her head which limits her telepathy a little so that she can't try to take over any more planets. Moondragon is less than enthusiastic about this particular fashion accessory, and the fact that it keeps her from zazzing Leviathan as hard as she'd like to. Gargoyle watches his teammates fail, and is like, Listen up, you whippersnappers! We need to start working together, as a team! Angel is like, Yeah, let's do some teamwork stuff! Everyone's like, Great idea, Angel! Gargoyle is like, Seriously? Oh, whatever. Warren and Beast start zooming around Leviathan's head and distracting him. Then Bobby and Isaac shoot him in the head with respective blasts of ice and nonsense. Then, Moondragon zaps his brain with a mind bolt. Finally, Valkyrie leaps from the back of her flying horse and delivers a two-fisted punch, which KOs the colossal creep. Hooray! The gang congratulate one another on a job well done. After a little while, Nick Fury shows up with some S.H.I.E.L.D. agents to put Leviathan in some of those giant metal handcuffs that keep people from using their powers. Fury is like, Thanks for catching him, guys. We'll lock him up again. Beast is like, And how do you know he won't escape again? Nick is like, I told you, no one has ever escaped from S.H.I.E.L.D. custody, and no one ever will. Gargoyle is like, Okay, fine, but... Do you think there's any chance he'll be released by double agents who have infiltrated your organization again? Nick is like, Oh, almost certainly. Frankly, I'm surprised it hasn't happened while we were talking just now. A S.H.I.E.L.D. agent runs up to Nick and is like, Director Fury, while we were out looking for Leviathan, Mad Dog and Mutant Force managed to es- Um, get released by double agents. Nick Fury is like, Dang it. Say. You don't think there's something wrong with the vetting process we have for hiring secret agents, do you? The S.H.I.E.L.D. guy is like, We have a vetting process? Didn't you once actively recruit Jack fucking Norris as an agent? Nick Fury is like, Yeah, good point. Valkyrie is like, Wait, you did? The estranged ex-husband of the woman whose body I once inhabited. The one who was always bellowing, Where's my wife? At me. That Jack Norris? Nick Fury is like, Yeah, I'm pretty bad at my job. 
The end. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, what is best in life? I feel like you expect me to give you the Conan answer, but I don't know if I'm in line with that anymore. I don't want to hear people lamenting. No, I don't want to hear people lamenting either. And honestly, sure, crushing your enemies and seeing them driven before you is pretty great, Mm -hmm. but has Conan ever tried a nice fresh tomato? Or a peach. A summer peach. Summer peach is pretty good. Mm-hmm. A little bit messy. Well, yeah. No, you gotta eat it over the sink. Tomato can be kind of messy, too. Mm-hmm. We had some fresh tomatoes on bagels the other day. Oh. Some capers. Ooh, yeah. Cream cheese. Perfect. Red onion. Love it. A little bit of locks. Man, what a party. Uh-huh. I found myself thinking, I think this might be best in life. Yeah, I think it's better than... Crushing your enemies, seeing them driven before you, and hearing the lamentation of their women. It's better than the stuff that made that the best thing for him, because... Oh, uh, yeah, he had know, a sad life. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, point is, fresh tomato is really, really good. I don't know if there is a piece of produce that the difference between a really good one and a middle-of-the-road one is that wide. I feel like there are other fruit, though, that have that... It's, it's like a zero-sum game, like an avocado. Yeah, avocados, like, you're, you're totally right. Those are like a binary. Mm-hmm. Like, it is either amazing or fucking terrible. But I don't think there are that many, like, middle-of-the-road avocados, you know? Yeah, no, they're kind of one or the other. But with tomatoes, I feel like most tomatoes are, yeah, that's fine, I don't really give a shit about it. Mm-hmm. And then if you get a good one, it's like, oh, fuck. Yeah, that's a good point. There's not a lot of other fruits or veggies that are like that. Anyway. You want to talk about this comic book? Yeah, much like an avocado. <laughs> oh. No, thank goodness these are not like avocados. No, I would say this was more like a tomato. It was fine. That's where I was going with that. Yeah. So, I mean, you've already started to answer the question, but just for the sake of formality. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? I thought... Like, a middle-of-the-road tomato. I was glad that it was there, but... Eh. It was a comic book that, when I first read it, I was not that crazy about. And it took me a while to adjust to the different art style. I feel like the art team of Don Perlin and Kim DeMolder that we had before was one that was really starting to gel really well, and I was really getting used to. And this is a different artist. It is Alan Cooperberg, and... It's a very different art style. It's one that is not really my preference. I wouldn't say it's bad. It's just very of its era and a very specific type of art that, like I said, it took me a little bit to adjust to. Once I got used to it, there was a lot I enjoyed about it, but it took some adjusting. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the arts credit on that. I feel like we don't often see somebody credited as a guest artist. Does that mean that, I don't know, management's working on the roster and the guy got thrown in before figuring out if they want to keep him on board? Or I think when you see someone credited as a guest artist, it is saying that, no, the regular art team is coming back, but there were some scheduling issues. What's surprising about this is he is credited as a guest artist. I looked ahead and he does this issue and the next two issues. 
which is why I'm glad that I did start to get adjusted to his style. Alan Cooperberg was an artist who got his start in comic strips, I think. He had done some fill-in work for Marvel, but in, I think, 78, he was working on the short-lived Howard the Duck comic strip and the Incredible Hulk comic strip, which was also very short-lived. Did you say short-lived Howard the Duck comic strip? Yeah. Why, oh, why didn't it have a long run like, say, what was the unfunny dog one? (laughs) Fred Bassett? (laughs) Like Fred Bassett. Well, in part because of legal issues with Steve Gerber. Steve Gerber left the Howard the Duck title and thought he would be able to keep doing the daily comic strip, and wasn't for a number of reasons. So at that point, it was taken over by Marv Wolfman and Alan Cooperberg. No kidding. There was also a short-lived Incredible Hulk daily comic strip that he worked on, and he also worked on Little Orphan Annie. He did a number of fill-in titles for Marvel, dating back to 74, and he did a bunch of also fill-in work for DC. I think we've covered some of his work. I don't know if you were there for it, if we had a guest for that in the Teen Titans Spotlight issues, but I might be mixing that up with something else that I did for a Patreon-only video or something. He has a style that I think is very well suited to the early 80s. It is a little bit more cartoonish than I think we're used to, but also with some elements of almost Art Deco style in terms of the economy of line movement and stuff. It reminds me of a, frankly, less grounded Walt Simonson in some ways. Mm. And it, it certainly isn't bad, but there are times when I think it is not a great match for... Demetrius's writing style. There is not quite the flow from panel to panel, and it seemed a little bit choppy at times with the amount of dialogue that we were getting. Yeah, that was one of my takeaways. I felt like I was reading a lot of thought bubbles, especially yeah. in this. That I don't know if jarring is too strong of a word, but it did take me out of it a little bit. It, it's subtle differences in terms of the storytelling flow, because Demetrius is at least at this point a fairly wordy writer. And if the panels and the word bubbles don't flow into one another in an intuitive way, it makes it difficult to get into the story. And in the first couple of pages specifically, it was hard for me to get into the story. Once I did, it was fine. I appreciated that it pretty much made sense and seemed to be telling a single story, which was a nice change of pace. Yeah, I like... That idea of, okay, we're a new team, we're trying to figure out who's going to be in charge, there's a wild card in the bunch, Moondragon doesn't really want to be there, sowing some seeds of dissension probably, Mm -hmm. but, you know, at the end of the day, Coach Gargi gets the team back together and we act in a unified front and beat up the carnivorous giant that wants to eat all the superheroes. Yeah, Leviathan, who looks very different on the cover than he does on the interior. On the cover, he looks like a, I don't know, roided up Quicksilver, kind of. He Mm -hmm. has that pointy white haircut. Mm -hmm. And then on the interior, he has like basically just male pattern baldness, like a John Malkovich style haircut and a much more, I don't know, he reminded me kind of of Big Nose from the Smurfs. Wait, not Big Nose, Big Mouth. I don't remember that character. He was the ogre that was always oh. trying to beat up Gargamel, and then Gargamel would trick him into being a jerk. Oh. And the character is kind of playing on some of the same tropes that that character did. In terms of you kind of start to get the impression of, oh, he's just a big stupid guy who doesn't understand his own strength and 
is inadvertently hurting people, thinks it's just a big game. But then you get that, no, he actually is evil and he wants to kill and hurt all of these people. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was interesting. I think that's a subversion of what we have come to expect with big, strong, kind of dumb characters. And, I mean, I think it's important to remember that stupid and evil isn't any more rare a combination than smart and evil. Mm -hmm. If only there were some examples we could point to in our recent history. Yeah, no, I can't think of anybody that's just really, really incredibly stupid and also incredibly evil. Thank goodness. Yeah. Speaking of incompetent government officials, what do you think of Nick Fury in this story? I was so refreshed by Nick Fury's immediate owning up to the giant fuck-up that his agency (laughs) had allowed to take place, and amused by the fact that he was so angry about the fuck-up, he punched a wall and then really hurt his hand and was like, ouch! I love Nick Fury, and I think we have talked about it when he has come up in the past, but it is a constant source of amusement to me that he is in charge of an international espionage agency. Because the character that he was created to be is almost uniquely ill-suited for that job. Mm -hmm. Which is something that he frankly kind of demonstrates in this issue. I like him. He seems like he is very bad at his job, and he is doing a terrible job running a organization that is completely infested with infiltrators. The thing that pissed me off most about S.H.I.E.L.D. in this issue was that they have disguised an exit ostensibly at a very high floor of their office building that just goes outside. Yeah. Like, you're supposed to disguise it from the outside so people don't know how to get in, right? One would think. It's a holographic blue square that's on the wall but if you walk through it you just fall out of the building and die (laughs) unless you can fly right i think that is very in keeping with shield's general practice of i don't know arbitrary secrecy for no apparent reason Mm. and then other times full transparency Mm -hmm. it really does seem like there is just not any rhyme or reason to the things that they keep totally hush hush or anything that they do A fact that is, again, kind of exemplified by the fact that they made a guy who is known for being a straight shooter, gruff, no diplomacy at all, who, I think, rose to the rank of sergeant in the army as the head of their international espionage agency. Yeah, it's almost questionable. Yeah. I want to be clear. I would also be absolutely terrible at being in charge of an international espionage agency. Well, we've both had uh, management scares in our professional lives. Where, (laughs) Yeah, I got promoted once. Thank God that didn't catch on. Oh, I hated it so much. It wasn't really my cup of tea either. So we talked about how different Leviathan looks on the cover of this issue. What did you think of this cover? My first thought was, what a scary, ugly bad guy. Yeah. Very scary, very ugly, very stylized. The cover is by Mike Zeck and John Beatty, who is an art team that we covered at at least one point before, I think, for a different cover that they did. They are probably best known for working together on the Secret Wars miniseries. The only reason that I know that we have covered them before is because John Beatty is the guy who 
inspired the short-lived segment, The Stallone Zone. Oh, really? Yeah, he has, for a guy without a ton on his comics resume, a bizarrely elaborate Wikipedia page. Wow. Which does mention that the first convention he went to, he went to with a friend of his who started the website The Stallone Zone. So just to bring it back briefly, which Sylvester Stallone movie would you say that this comic book reminds you of? Oh, man, that's a tough one because so many of his movies are, you know, individual protagonist films. I'm mm-hmm. going to have to say this one's probably Expendables, I don't know, 10? <laughs> how many are they up to? <laughs> I don't know how many they're up to. It's like one of those because it's a team. I got bored after together. the first one. But I did find out that Frasier is in the third one, which does make me kind of want oh, to get back on board for shit. a second. We, we may need to. We might need to watch yeah. that. We're probably going to have to watch them in order, though, so we don't get confused. Oh, I would be so lost just trying to jump <laughs> in in the third one. Uh-huh. How about you? I'm going to say maybe Judge Dredd. Hmm. How come? It has an aesthetic that is very specific to a certain era of the art that it came out in. Like, Judge Dredd is a very, very 90s-looking movie. I was initially very disappointed by it, and I don't think it worked as well for me as I wished it did, but the more time I spent with it, the more I was like, that's eh, fine for what it is. Mm. And it's kind of an ensemble film because uh, Rob Schneider's in it. The you-can-do-it guy from The Waterboy? Yeah, he played the uh, sidekick. Oh, shit, I totally blocked that out. Armanda Sante, I believe, was the bad guy. I might be wrong about any of that, though. It's been a long time since I've seen that movie. Me too. I'm okay with that. Yeah. So we see some playing around with the new team dynamic in this issue. This is their first full adventure as a team. And there's some interesting stuff happening with that. I think the most obvious thing that is happening is that, as you mentioned... Moondragon is the wild card, and she is very fun in that role. You see both Iceman and Angel having thought bubbles in which they continually express attraction to her, identically worded thought bubbles, which could just be a one-off joke or could be a sign that maybe Moondragon is mentally manipulating them. Did you take it that way? I took it that way because... Otherwise, it's a very bad joke, you know, like that they would have exactly the same thought of, I wonder what it's like to kiss a bald person. Yeah, I didn't think it was a terrible joke. And in part, that was because in my mind, it was reminding me of another joke. Have we talked before about the time Joe Montana hosted Saturday Night Live? It may have come up. There was a sketch that was Phil Hartman and Jan Hooks and Joe Montana was their roommate. And the running gag of the sketch was... (laughs) That, I remember the punchline. Yeah. So Phil Hartman would be saying to Jan Hooks, like, oh, it's getting pretty late. You'd probably want to go home soon. But inside he's thinking, oh, I hope she doesn't leave. I really want to jump her bones. And then they would show her saying, well, maybe I could stay a little bit later. And she's thinking, oh, I really want to jump his bones. And so like playing with the idea of like, oh, here's what they're saying, but here's what they're thinking. And then... Joe Montana, as Phil Hartman's roommate, comes home, and he says exactly what he is thinking all of the time. Like, he says, it's nice to meet you. And he's thinking, it's really nice to meet her. And that culminates with him saying, 
Oh, you won't disturb me. I'll be in my room masturbating. And thinking. They won't disturb me. I'll be masturbating. So every time there were identical thought bubbles between Bobby and Warren, I would think that it would be followed by, I don't know, maybe Gargoyle, just thinking, they won't bother me. I'll be upstairs masturbating. Oh, man, your brain is a, a funny place. Eh, it's a nice place to visit, but you would want to live there. Hmm. I did think it was interesting, though, that if Moon Dragon is mentally manipulating the group, that she wouldn't try that on Beast or Gargoyle, or frankly, Valkyrie, for that matter. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I was wondering about that myself. My only initial thought on it was that they are the two newer and younger and then potentially more, you know, competitive against each other members of the team. Okay. So sort of like weakest link to exploit. I think that does probably make sense. They are also the two most conventionally human looking, which I think may have played a role in that. But... She also does have a past history with Beast, so it may just be that she is picking up on more antagonism already there from Beast, and so is like, oh, he would be suspicious if he started having these new feelings about me. It is odd that she didn't try it on Gargoyle, though, I think. But maybe she's just skeezed out by his appearance. Maybe. I liked Gargoyle in this book. I thought he was a lot of fun. He was certainly the most down-to-earth with his folksy, hey guys, let's stop fighting wisdom. Mm-hmm. And yet, it seems as though there is not a push to make him the team leader. Did you get the impression that they are going to try to make Angel the team leader in this? I did, which I think is potentially a bad move because he didn't do very well. What I happened mean... to him with that t with the flagpole thing? <laughs> okay. He's just <laughs> flying and it's like, you know, like when a little kid's walking and then they just like spin around and fall down for no reason. <laughs> So I think what was happening is like the opposite of what happens with Daredevil, where Daredevil will be falling off a building and he will grab onto a flagpole on the way down and flip up. Mm -hmm. I think Angel was being thrown up and he grabbed the flagpole and swung around and started heading back down. I get the using the flagpole to right a wrong situation, but there was no explanation of like, there's just a panel of him like really herky-jerky hurtling through the air out of nowhere. I think that is probably attributable to Alan Cooperberg's art style and, and what I was saying before about like the action doesn't seem to flow easily from panel to panel. I also think that they are setting up Angel to be the team leader and I thought it was funny that he was the most defendery of the new defenders. I think I wrote down New defenders, same approach to conflict, which is at the first sign of it, you storm off angrily and quit the team. And so, you know, if he is going to be the new team leader, I appreciate that it has that kind of continuity. Mm. He mentions his girlfriend, Candy Southern, too, mm -hmm. which was why I was very annoyed with him for hitting on Moondragon, because Candy Southern is rad. I didn't look her up. She has been his girlfriend for a little while at this point, and she's just... Pretty cool. She's a fellow Richo, like himself. They are well-matched in that regard. She was also named after Terry Southern, who is maybe my favorite screenwriter, hmm. which I think was kind of fun. The reason that her first name is Candy is because he wrote a book called Candy. Not my favorite of his stuff, but it was based on Candide, but a modern reinterpretation of Candide. Hmm. So it was called Candy, and so that's why she's Candy Southern. I did not know any of those things. Do you know Terry Southern as a screenwriter? Nope. Okay, here's a partial list of his filmography. Okay. 
Doctor Strangelove. Oh. Barbarella. Oh. Easy Rider. What? The Magic Christian. Wow. The Loved One. And I know I'm missing a couple of really big ones. All of them seem really disparate to me. Yeah. And I really like all of those movies. He was the co-writer for most of them. But uh, huh. yeah, also a satirical novelist and wrote a book of short stories called Red Dirt Marijuana that I really liked. Wow. That's Terry Southern. He's Candy Southern's namesake. Put the uh, more you know music in there. Oh, okay, I will. This is a very minor note, but every time Angel called Iceman Bob, it took me aback. Why? I never think of him as being called Bob. He's always Bobby to me. Mm. And so I was like, well, who the fuck is Bob? Who's he talking to? That's like when it's serious or when you're angry, like you drop the diminutive. Like, damn it, Nathaniel. <laughs> oh, God. It's not as bad as if you get the full name. Oh, no. It has been a while since I've gotten the Nathaniel Dimitri Hubbard. Oof. You know it's bad when you get the all three. Well, when I was a kid, I thought that the Dimitri Hubbard part of my name, and it was like very little kid, I thought that that literally meant you've been bad. Mm. And so I did insist to my mom when I would hear my full name, No! Me no meaty hubby! <laughs> I remember that story. Corey Tiberius Whitney. <laughs> uh, it's actually better than <laughs> the real situation. Well, you give off some James Kirk vibes. I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> You're always sleeping with green ladies. Well. Breaking the prime directive. Life is short. Yeah. I do think judo is pretty cool. You're always doing judo chops. Yeah. On lizard men. I don't like lizards. I mean, that's tough but fair. Thank you. Remember, our show's motto. If it has a cloaca, it's gonna attack ya. Mm. Lizards, birds, no thank you. Nope. What was that, ska band? I don't know. That had the Captain Kirk song. Oh, it was the William Shatner song. William Shatner, William Shatner, Captain of the crew, he knows what to do. I do not remember who sang that. Oh. I'm disappointed in myself and proud of myself. Yeah, you made space in that old, that old noggin. Yeah. Well done. Now to fill that space in my brain with alcohol. Hey guys, Editor Hub here in the future. Just wanted to point out that the band I couldn't think of the name of is The Scofflaws. William Shatner! So once again, we see that the arch enemies of the Defenders are being set up to be the Secret Empire. What did you think of the Secret Empire? Man, I think that our buddy, uh, what was his name, Bob with the mustache and the purple hood? Rudy. Rudy from Hive. Yeah. Has found new employment. It seems like this issue reinforces, if nothing else, that they should keep a watch list for people who buy purple robes. Purple hood, up to no good. There you go. Boom. Who do we got? We got Hive, mm -hmm. the spicy poop rankers from over in New Teen Titans. We got these assholes. We got the previous cult from the early issues of the Defenders. Mm -hmm. Skeletor, he's got a purple hood. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right. Purple hood, up to no good. Blue and yellow, kill a fella. Also Skeletor. He's got some yellow on him, right? And some blue. Good point. Mm -hmm. 
Is his face yellowish? No. I think his face is yellow. Okay. And his skin is blue, and mm-hmm. his hood is purple. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Double whammy. I don't know that anyone was ever fooled about Skeletor. <laughs> I mean... Just because he walks around saying, I'm evil all the time. I yeah. guess. Kind of on the nose. I don't think anybody was just like, you know who we should listen to more? Mm-hmm. That buff skeleton who's always giggling. <laughs> But you know what you should listen to more of? Garden Plots with Skeletor. Skeletor's gardening podcast that I am a writer for. It is. Paradise. (laughs) (laughs) No, it is a funny show. I've listened to it. I like it. Yeah, I had a couple of thoughts on The Secret Empire. The main one was there are a lot of similarities between them and Hive, the spicy poop rankers. What was it an acronym for initially? It was like Hierarchy of Um. Infiltrating something and eliminations it was the eliminations was definitely the, the, the e which was like yeah the poop they're, and the hierarchy means they're ranking mm-hmm. so the spicy poop rankers also identify each other by numbers as these guys do also value anonymity so that was one thing i thought about the secret empire the other thing that i thought was oh fuck is august masters in charge of these guys oh. Did you think that at all? No, but it is a legitimate concern. Because you see that the leader is reading a book called The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. It's only a matter of time till there's some centurion skirts. Mm -hmm. So it could be August Masters. Mm -hmm. It could also be Satan. We've learned that demons like to wear Roman centurion helmets too. That's true. So maybe we'll be in luck. Maybe it'll just be Satan. But I'm worried that it might be August Masters. Yeah, because he kind of lost his shit last round. Uh-huh. I don't remember exactly what happened, but he just couldn't handle seeing the amalgamated ennui of a race of nose food playing Speedo Angels who crawled out of a bearded space weirdo's head. But what really put it over the top was the maybe android version of himself that he saw dead? No, android version of Kyle. Oh, it was Kyle, not himself. Yeah. Oh. Man, you'd think I would remember that. That was a pretty heavy moment. It was, but to be fair, there was a lot going on in that issue. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, so, I don't know. I'm worried August Masters might be back. It at least seems a head fake in that direction. Or it could just be J.M. DeMatteis continuing to evince a Roman centurion fetish. We will see. I really hope it's the latter. I hope it's the latter, too. Which is a weird hope. <laughs> I mean, in a way, it kind of makes sense. I feel like a lot of American fascists and modern-day fascists in general show a lot of interest in the Roman Empire. So maybe it's just drawing that parallel. Yeah, I mean, they invented concrete and plumbing and stuff, I guess, but those public toilets where y'all got to poop facing each other, I don't get that, man. No, that seems like a bad idea. You're right. Maybe the Roman Empire was no damn good. I'm just saying, that's awkward. Well, they also had a lead in their aqueducts. They're pumping crazy juice to their entire empire all the time. No good. That explains the whole toilet situation. And Caligula. Ugh. I mean, Caligula could also perhaps explain the toilet situation. (laughs) Either way, you heard it here first. Roman Empire. But thanks for the plumbing. When we were at the beach a while ago, Finley kept going and anytime there was any flowing water he would be super obsessed with it so he'd be like digging at the rocks around where there would be a little creek or something 
And so uh, we started calling him Agrippa, Roman god of the aqueducts. Oh, wow. Yeah, he hated that. <laughs> Razzed him good. I bet. Got real, you hear that, Agrippa? Get a real rise out of him. Yeah. Well, Corey, there's probably some more to talk about, but I think most of it will come up in the minutiae. You feel like heading into the minutiae? Let's do it. All right. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part. It's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what category do you feel like starting off with? You want to talk about sound effects? Sure. What was your favorite sound effect in this issue? My favorite sound effect was like a callback sound effect thing, which I don't think I've seen before in a comic, which is weird, but the sound punk that it makes when somebody's forehead hits the ground after they've been knocked out after saying, that really hurt. And so first you see that happen to Val, where she's just very surprised to get KO'd. Mm-hmm. But then she turns around and returns the favor to, what's his name? Leviathan. Leviathan. And it's the same, like, sequence. And it's just, a, it's, I like that. It's evocative of something that's, it's not hollow, but, you know, your brain's got a little room to move around. Sure. Right? <laughs> you hit the ground, it's going to hit, hit the floor, it's going to make that, yeah, punk. I had the same thing. I wrote down, hurt, punk. Mm-hmm. It is weird to see hurt as a sound effect. And I guess it wasn't really a sound effect. It's him continuing to say that really hurt. But uh, yeah, the illustration of hurt and punk just kind of cracked me up. And I don't know, harkens back to the really early era of sound effects in comic books before they were strictly onomatopoeic, where you would sometimes see more evocative sound effects. Like I, I think I probably mentioned my favorite was Mano Metal when he turned to metal. The sound effect was, turns to metal again! <laughs> and Hurt Punk reminded me of that. It was a good one. There were also a number of other really good sound effects in this, frankly, more than we're used to seeing lately. And that was something that I thought really worked with the more cartoony style of Alan Cooperberg's art. Mm-hmm. We get the roo of the police sirens, the Womb and crack of Leviathan beating people up. We get a whoosh, we get a rip. And it's all with very cartoony, bubbly letters that really, as I said, work with the art style. Yeah, I liked the uh, crack slash wonk sound of uh, Bobby's distracted ice staircasing. <laughs> the crack with a K at the beginning and several Ks at the end. The sound of the ice shattering and the wonk, the sound of him hitting a wooden water tower. Mm-hmm. Pretty good. Not bad. What was your favorite panel in this issue? I had uh, a couple of the kind of big full page ones that were my choices, but there was a much more subtle one that I think actually might be my favorite. And that is on page seven. I called it Auga. And it is the horrified look on some S.H.I.E.L.D. employee's face when the alarm goes off. And he was messing with like some panel or something. And I'm mm-hmm. thinking to myself, empathetically, if I was him, I'd be like, oh, shit, what have I done? 
Like, I've set off this alarm. He just looks horrified. Mm-hmm. You never want to draw attention to yourself. No, if you're no. a part of a large organization, slow and low, that's the way to do it. Yeah. You stick your head up too high, somebody's going to knock you down. Yep. So I, I, I liked the way that that expression was rendered, just that utter horror, but not horror of something's gone wrong, horror of, what have I done? Have I done something? Was it me? I had a similar small moment panel as my favorite. It is on page 11, and it is a panel that I call Moon Dragon Loving This Shit. You see her just drinking from a goblet, just looking up and loving the drama that is going on around her as Valkyrie and Beast are arguing about which of them should be leader. And a big part of where I got the idea that Angel is probably going to be the leader is that Valkyrie and Beast are the first two people to say, I should be leader. Mm. So you know it can't be one of them. But you see, as they are arguing, Angel is watching her, and Moondragon is just, like, taking a sip from her goblet of wine, and being like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she looks very satisfied. And that is one thing that I think Alan Cooperberg does really well. I think maybe coming from a comic strip background, you get used to being able to convey emotions really well with as little line work as possible because it is a field that has such a fast turnaround for your work. Mm. And I think that is something that comes across in a few different panels on various characters' faces where you're like, oh, that's what they're thinking. Mm -hmm. I had a couple of other favorite panels. As you said, there are some group scenes that are really fun that I did like a lot. But for single panels of characters, there was one of Gargoyle that I really liked, that's on page 15. Um, he has a scary face on that one, right? Yeah, he absolutely does. And has those, like, white eyeballs that look almost like the demon from DC, the mm. Jack Kirby illustrations of that. Mm. Despite the fact that he is canonically a very frightening-looking character, you seldom see Gargoyle look frightening. And he looks scary as shit there. Yeah, he does. Um, not even deterred by his weird, stinky purple bondage gear. Little bit lessened by the fact that he exclaims, Holy jumping fireballs! I know, if he had said something more menacing, uh-huh. that would have been a... Something scary. even slightly metal sounding. But yeah, no, that is a very old I'm man going to tear your balls off! <laughs> sure! For example. Sure, if he had Cronus from Venom writing his dialogue for him. Man, can you imagine, actually, if we've got it wrong the whole time, and instead of that old man voice, he sounds like the guy from Venom? <laughs> <laughs> That'd be pretty great. That'd be exhausting, your poor vocal cords. I mean, he's got demonic vocal cords that uh, were gifted to him when he sold his soul to... This is the only setting I have! I would like some economic incentives for my small town! Yep. Holy jumping fireballs! Hey, I'd thing. like a hamburger sandwich! Please! Young people today are always wearing dungarees! <laughs> Lisa and I visited Chicago recently to visit some of her family. Hmm. At one point, my four-year-old nephew was insisting that he was old enough to do something that he wasn't old enough to do. And he said something like, I'm very old! And we're like, oh, if you were very old, you'd say things like dungarees and hamburger sandwiches. And so, for the rest of the trip, it was a very funny game for him to be an old man by saying, Dungarees and hamburger sandwiches! <laughs> That's cute. It was really cute. 
My other favorite panel is on page 18, and I called it Scary Horse, if that's not redundant. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, that is a heck of a panel. Yeah, Aragorn looks demonic as fuck. Or like a horse. Or like a horse, yeah. Like I said, like, scary horse. It's the angle. Yeah. It's just a scary angle. You never want to be under a horse. With its mouth open and its Ugh. nostrils flaring. God. Ugh. I mean, he's not doing the thing where you can see the horse's gums. That's the that, scariest that thing a horse the, can do. That is, I don't like that. I don't like it either. Did I tell you I had a nightmare one time where zebras were doing that? Ooh. I didn't care for it. No, I don't like that. No. It was like horses with mohawks. Mm-hmm. Centurion zebras. Yeah, they were centurion. Roman centurion zebras. You're like, oh, that guy's probably had some lead poisoning and he's fascist. No thanks. Probably likes to poop and talk to his friends at the same time. <laughs> what a creep. <laughs> Fucking horses. Or zebras. Okay, when you say it British style, zebras sound a lot less intimidating. Sloth. Yeah. <laughs> probably had an extra U in that word too, huh? Huh. Yeah, probably they spell sloth with a U. Like S L O U T H E. Yeah, and probably it starts with ye old. Well, it used to have three E's at the end. Right. And probably a T and an H in the middle for no reason. Uh huh, and the S looked like an F. Mm hmm. Fucking old timey people. <sighs> Grow up! Who's less letters? Corey, what was your pie not made out of steel this issue? What words did you like best, much like you would like a pie, if that pie were not made out of steel? I'm going to go with a, a scene that we talked about already, which is the kind of leadership squabble that takes place, maybe because of Moondragon, but probably also latent. One of the things that amused me about it was it pretty much paraphrases your exact argument that you've made before about why Val should be the leader mm -hmm. of the team. It's the part where Val basically says, I should be the leader, and, and Hank says, okay, why? And she's like, well, you know, just because I should. And he's like, no, really, tell me why. And she's like, okay. And she says, all right, then. You have neither the skill nor the temperament nor the experience to lead. After all, can the king's jester be expected to take charge of his armies? Zing. Zing, indeed. Yeah. I liked the preamble to that, too, which, which you paraphrased, but it is, uh, Hank, you misunderstand. I truly value you as a comrade. You possess a fine wit, a strong arm. And Beast is like, but? And she's like, must I really go on? And I guess we should say that that also is prefaced by her giving a kind of spiel about, like, Dude, I have a shit ton of experience. I used to lead armies like Odin picked me uh -huh. to do this shit, and I've done it for a fucking long time, so... Duh. And she is called undisciplined both by Hank and Bobby because she doesn't immediately do what Hank tells her to. That's not being undisciplined. No. no that's that's, some, that's just some saying, sexist shit right no, there. No, not doing what I'm told doesn't mean undisciplined when you're not my boss. And, you know, not to... Yuck anybody's fashion yum, and, and we'll get to this, but being yelled at by somebody wearing a pair of Speedos and dish gloves. Come on, man. You look like a damn fool. Yeah, that's a good point. Whenever Bobby is in his de-iced form, it does seem like you are taking orders from Rocky from Rocky the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Because <laughs> he's wearing silver lame Speedos and silver lame boots and dish gloves. Like gloves that go up to your elbow. There's no practical reason if you're not doing dishes or, I don't know, something like that. Well, I mean, he does make everything else be made out of ice. Maybe it's, you know, the fingers 
and the juncular region are where most of your super sensitive nerve endings are, maybe you don't want to get frostbite on those. Like, maybe the rest of them is okay with that degree of cold, but fingers, toes, juncular region. Fingers, toes, yes. But those gloves go up to his elbows and those boots go up to, like, below his kneecaps. So you're saying he should be just wearing those those things like librarians wear? Like those little gloves that just cover your fingertips? Like finger cots? Yeah. Yeah. He should just be wearing those and on his toes. Yep, and I guess a condom. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Tough but fair? That's a, that's a worse look. <laughs> I would think so, but uh, if that's what you're advocating for, Bobby's new outfit being, then okay. No, because his, his butt would get cold, too. So, okay, he can keep the speedos. Yeah, there's super sensitive nerve endings up there, too. Yeah, okay, speedos are fine, but yeah, finger cots for fingers and toes. Okay. Then we can take him serious. Finally. <laughs> My favorite words in this issue are Moondragon reacting to Valkyrie's self-reproach. Gargoyle is saying, It's about time you guys came to your sense and realized we need to work together. And Valkyrie, trying to be the bigger person here, is like, Indeed, Isaac, I had believed myself above such puerile behavior. In truth, I was the worst culprit of all. And Moondragon is sitting behind her on the horse and just says, How true. <laughs> I know. She, God, she's such a, a jerk, but in a, a fun way to observe. That lady has a toilet spoon the size of Manhattan, because she just loves to stir up shit. Uh-huh. And I love watching it. It's terrific. She just loves the drama, and, uh, is, yeah, she's in an unpleasant situation. She's making the best of it. You're here. You know, for her, not for anyone else. Well, but, that's yeah. what you gotta do. Corey, every issue of a new Defenders comic has a best new Defender and a worst new Offender? Mm. I think just worst Offender. That's fine. Yeah. Who did you have as your best Defender and who did you have as your worst Offender? For my best, for telling everybody to shut up and get along, or I'm going to turn this car around, <laughs> I went with uh, Grandpa Gargoyle. I had the same choice. I think Gargoyle was great in this issue. I think we are supposed to see Angel as being the natural leader, but I feel like it's kind of bullshit that they are overlooking Gargoyle. He's a character I've certainly had my qualms about in the past, but I don't know. It seems like the easy choice and kind of the predictable one, especially for this era that the comic is taking, making the new team leader be the conventionally attractive blonde guy you know well he's rich hub oh well good point yeah i like him better than kyle but he is clearly a stand-in for kyle and i resented whenever everyone would assume that kyle should be the team leader of the defenders and i kind of resent that everyone is assuming that angel will be the leader of the new defenders yeah i get that and i feel that way however I guess, at least in Angel's defense or in this book's defense, they're setting it up that way without doing what Kyle did, which was loudly proclaiming himself in charge constantly, which really takes away from your leadership, I think. That is fair. Do you think that Angel and Gargoyle ever do any pranks when they hang out together, where Angel will be like, 
I'll be right back. And then Gargoyle will come in the room and be like, Oh no, there was an aging ray! Like, the X-Men are always having time travel shenanigans. I feel like the fun-loving version of Angel would maybe be doing some stuff like that with Gargoyle. I don't know, maybe. I was thrown off by one thing that Bobby said, which was that uh, Angel was turned on by Gargoyle's wings. I don't think he meant it in a sexy way. I don't think he did either, but I know what you mean. It came it, out weird. It did. A- awkward phrasing on Bobby's part, mm-hmm. if nothing else. For my worst offender, this might be too much of a stretch these days, because now that the defenders are more like a zeppelin and less like a blimp, in that they have a rigid internal structure, maybe I can't be as freewheeling with my choices and not every hero in the book is a potential defender. But if we're going by the old rules, I think the worst offender in this book is Nick Fury. Oh, let the bad guys out. Yeah. And just in general, it seems like, like we were talking about, S.H.I.E.L.D. is a real fucking shit show. And if you're in charge of this shit show, whether you should be in charge of it or not, the buck kind of has to stop there. Did you say the butt has to stop there? I said the buck, I think, but yeah, Nick Fury has a hell of a butt. You're right. I mean, if I was in charge of an international espionage agency, I probably wouldn't wear a bodysuit all the time. But uh, bad about like Nick Fury's, maybe I would. Wait, bodysuit? I thought he just had a suit suit. Oh, does he in this? I'm so used to seeing him wear that uh, body sock. (laughs) No, it's like a suit. Oh, well, good to know. Who did you have as your worst? Oh, boy. I had kind of a toss-up between... I did not like Beast's approach to trying to shut Val's speech down by interrupting her. Mm-hmm. But worse than that, I, I think I had to go on, um, you know, just performance. And Angel, like, doesn't do anything. He almost flies into a flagpole uh-huh. and then basically gets knocked out and has to be rescued. Well, at the end, though, he has the brilliant strategy that they should work together. Yeah, but Gargoyle has been saying that all. Yeah, I know. He kind of swoops in at the end and steals Gargi's thunder. Yeah. And it's just like, no, I agree with what he said. You should work together. And then everybody's instantly like, Angel's right. Yeah, it's like the guy in the meeting that always, like, when somebody has a good idea that they say every single time, oh, I was just thinking that. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, no, you weren't. Or just says the same idea louder. Mm Mm-hmm. Man, have you ever had that happen? where you say a joke, and it doesn't get much of a reaction, and then a few minutes later, somebody else says the joke, and it gets a laugh? No, but you know way more jokes than I do. It's very frustrating. Hmm. I've had that happen to me before, and I was just like, you sons of bitches! Wait, with the same audience? Yeah. What was the difference? I don't know. Maybe they just liked him better. Oh. I don't know. I think they didn't hear me the first time. That's probably it. You're probably just too quiet. Wait, had you been drinking enough? I must not have been. Okay. Because when I have been drinking enough and I make a joke and it doesn't get a laugh, I assume nobody heard it, and so I say it again louder. (laughs) Or just start haranguing people for not understanding. Yeah, idiots. (laughs) Well, we've skirted around this topic a few times already, but sartorially speaking... Which elements of fashion did you find most worthy of note? I feel like we've already talked enough, probably too much, about Bobby's de-iced look. Mm-hmm. The other one that stood out for me, other than Nick Fury's very well-tailored but not body sock suit, <laughs> is Leviathan's 
I don't know, unitard? Yeah, big yellow onesie with a... It's got what those, is that, stirrup pants? Yeah, it's got those foot strap thingies that I associate with 80s, uh, I don't know if it's aerobics or ballet dancing type, those little yeah. foot strap. It is things. an interesting costume, and it is one of the few aspects of his character design that is consistent between the cover and the interior of the book. Yeah, he's wearing a onesie that kind of reminds me of Mr. Perfect's old ring gear, mm. uh, with the exception of the fact that it has full pants instead of shorts. It's not a good look, but it's fine. It's bright yellow, so, you know, it shows up. That was one of the main things that I noticed, that the purple robes of the Secret Empire. And there was one page where it looked like Moon Dragon had painted both of her hands green. I don't know if you noticed that. There's a different colorist for this issue. And I feel bad because coloring seems to be something that I only bring up when there are miscues. Mm. But Moon Dragon's costume has dish gloves that are not dissimilar to Bobby's, except for that they are green and not silver lame. But despite it being one of my favorite panels, the panel on page 11, where she is drinking and thinking, <laughs> yeah, these guys are a bunch of fucknuts. Her fingers are clearly painted green. You can see her fingernails. It is a little jarring. Yeah, this is kind of weird. Mm. You can see it on the previous page, too. It just looks like kind of a rushed coloring job. Mm -hmm. I think the fact that it is a different art team and specifically a different colorist, he was maybe not as familiar with what her costume generally looked like. But, uh, yeah, kind of stood out. Yeah, her gloves don't have fingernails on them, I assume. I mean, maybe they do. Maybe it's like Batman's cowls with the uh, eyebrows painted on mm. from the 60s. Maybe mm. she just has fingernails drawn onto the outside of her gloves. Pretty weird. Yeah, well, I don't know what fucking Saturn's fashion is like. She's from one of the moons of Saturn, so uh, maybe they do weird shit there. Could be. At one point, she says Sirens of Titan as an exclamation. Made me think of Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah, it was fun. Yep. I like it when I think of Kurt Vonnegut. Mm -hmm. Kazak, the space dog. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite Kurt Vonnegut book? I mean, the one that I always go back to is the very first one I read when I was, like, I don't know, 14, Breakfast of Champions, which is not his best literary work, but it is, for whatever reason, the one that, like, stuck in my head. Well, it's certainly the first book that I read that had pictures of people's assholes drawn <laughs> in it. Asterisks. Yeah, that really cracked me up. Yeah, like, me too. That's easy to draw. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna draw assholes on everything now. <laughs> I don't know. Slaughterhouse-Five is good. A bummer, of course, but... Yeah. I like both of those books. I think probably my favorite is God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, but I like pretty much all of his books except Timequake. I didn't read Timequake. You can skip it. Mm. Corey, let's have ourselves a Battle of the Band! Names! Oof. What band names were you able to find in the text of this book? I only came up with two. As did I. All right. What were they? Well, the first one, I think just because it has a similar sound to Stiff Little Fingers, I think of them as an Irish punk rock band. Hmm. And that's uh, Dirty Little Fiends. <laughs> Ooh, Dirty Little Fiends is good. That's yeah. not a band already? DLF. No, I couldn't find one. That's pretty good. Cursory internet search. Dirty Little Fiends is nice. Yeah. I like that. DLF for short. Mm -hmm. I had one that I think is an old-timey 50s style band, 
it was honestly the one that sounded the most like it might be a real band. I think they would be the kind of band that would be like, they all probably have other jobs as accountants and stuff like that, but they get together and will play catered events and stuff like that while they wear their Hawaiian shirts. Mm. Mad Dog and the Mutant Force. Oh, fuck. I had that too. Oh, shit. Well, I guess that's probably your choice. That's the rules. Mm-hmm. Well, just to clear the deck, my other choice was Gobble Crash. <laughs> <laughs> what does that sound like? So Gobble Crash, I think, plays really slow, dirge-like covers of punk bands. Oh. The premise of the group is that they only play the day after Thanksgiving. <laughs> oh. And the idea is that they're a punk band who has just eaten too much turkey and uh, is slow. all groggy on tryptophan. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, they're called Gobble Crash. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I think both Dirty Little Fiends and Gobble Crash are better than Mad Dog and the Mutant Force. Mm -hmm. But Mad Dog and the Mutant Force, I do think, Sounds like a band of 50-year-old accountants who wear Hawaiian shirts. Your uh, description of it brought me back to a school talent show from uh, when I was in junior high. And I had this, there was this math teacher, Mr. Schwer, and that was like, everybody was kind of scared of him for no reason. Like, he wasn't, he never raised his voice or whatever, but mm -hmm. his classroom was like, the shades were drawn. It was like very serious and everybody was quiet and behaved really well. He just had a, a vibe. Mm -hmm. And then in this talent show, him and a bunch of other teachers had, yeah, bright clothing, and um, they played the song Louie Louie, and he did this amazing guitar solo, and he played a Stratocaster, and I was Whoa. like, what the fuck? <laughs> I can't remember if this has come up on the show, but um, the inspiration for what I think of as Mad Dog and the Mutant Forces being is there was a band in Portland, they might still be playing for all I know, that was called Johnny Limbo and the Lugnuts. And honestly, they probably made a fair amount of money, but they were exactly that type of band. Bar band that does covers of 50s and 60s classic rock. And whenever there was like a local news center catered event, they would be playing there, you know? Mm -hmm. I was thinking for Mad Dog and Mutant Force, and I think it's just because dogs in the title, that it was um, like a Swamp Dog inspired Oh, that would be great. Music. I do love Swamp Dog, but yeah. the band format of nickname and the blank, I think they're cheesier than Swamp Dog. Well, it's like a Swamp Dog knockoff with a, a, big, okay. a big backing band. I do love Swamp Dog. It's good stuff. His cover of Sam Stone, the John Prine song, that's, there's a hole in daddy's arm where all the money goes, is so good. Like, he sings that so beautifully. In summation, Swamp Dog is much better than Mad Dog and the Mutant Force. But Mad Dog and the Mutant Force is what we got. That's what we have to work with. Corey. Yes? Despite the fact that he is no longer a member of this team, and will, if ever, appear only sporadically in this title again, I think we will both agree that the Hulk rules. In this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? And, sidebar, should we change the name of this? Now that the Hulk is no longer a defender, now that we're into the new defenders, should it be somebody else's rules? Valkyrie is the closest character to somebody that rules. Oh, she totally it, does rule. Yeah, but it doesn't have the same... 
Well, we'll brainstorm on it. If we can think of, like, a good name for what it should be, but... Moondragon's the... advice column. Dear Moondragon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Moondragon's etiquette? I don't know. Mm. None of it seems to quite work. So for now, we'll stick with the Hulk's rules, but something to think about. Okay. Well, what were your Hulk's rules this issue? This is a rare two-parter. Ooh. Yeah, Hulk gathered some rules from a couple different sources in this issue. The first one came from Moondragon. Mm-hmm. And it is certainly a rule that I wish I could execute, but it's not really in my wheelhouse. But it is, don't say something unless you have something to say, or it will waste your precious spiritual energy. <laughs> ah. It is a good point. I think a, a lot of people, myself included, might benefit from, oh, just not saying something if you don't really have something constructive to say. I think that's an excellent rule. What was your other rule? The other rule Hulk got by watching the exchange between Beast and Val, and that's if you don't think you really want to hear what somebody has to say, don't force them to say it to you. Yeah. Live in that carefully constructed lie <laughs> that you've created all those years. It's just more comfy in there. Yeah, man, Val laid a hell of a trap there, I gotta say, though. If somebody is just like, do I really need to say it? I am pretty much every time gonna be like, yeah, you know what? I think you do. Well. So I, I would have trouble learning that Hulk's rule. No, it's a, the, both of these are uh, easier said than done, but mm. you can stick to them. Might be a little easier. I had the Hulk learning a rule that is also kind of difficult to stick to these days. And that is just because a law enforcement agency does one good thing doesn't mean that you can trust them. Mm. The lesson I'm trying to keep in mind these days, for mm. no reason. When the Defenders are dealing with S.H.I.E.L.D., they like the fact that S.H.I.E.L.D. has locked up Mutant Force and Mad Dog for them. Because they don't want Mad Dog and the Mutant Force to be playing any of their catered events for local news stations. Oh, they hate that. Oh, it's the worst. Just gonna play the Kingsman over and over. Just Louie Louie and followed by Kokomo. Had infinitum. Maybe Steppenwolf, if you're lucky. Oh god, you'd be so lucky. You'd kill to get some Steppenwolf at that point. And not, not even Magic Carpet Ride. You'd be happy to hear Sweet Hitchhiker at that point. I only know the one song that they had. <laughs> you know Born to be Wild. Oh, yeah, yeah. Magic Carpet Ride and Born to be Wild. Yeah, they probably just play Born to be Wild. Yeah. Sweet Hitchhiker's not a bad song, but... The first several times I heard it, I thought that the guy was saying Swedish biker. (laughs) Also nice. Yeah. Probably. Anyway, when the new Defenders are dealing with S.H.I.E.L.D., they're stoked that they locked up uh, Mad Dog and the Mutant Force. But you can't trust S.H.I.E.L.D. They let people escape all the time. And also, there are, you know, going to be certain segments that are into fascism and the Roman Empire. I, I kind of love how bad Nick Fury is at his job. They're like, sir, there's a security breach on level L. He's like, we have a level L. <laughs> Good old Nick Fury. <laughs> I mean, oh yeah, let's go down there. Absolutely. He spends half the time looking for the light switch, and then he finds it and is like, oh, they murdered everybody. Oh, Turn the lights back off. It's real bad. What a dumb dumb. But the point is you can't trust S.H.I.E.L.D. Okay, so, fair. So, yeah, that's the Hulk's rules. Just because they're doing one good thing doesn't mean they are a trustworthy agency. 
Well, Corey, mm. I have just one more question I have to ask you. So many. I know. In the year of our Lord, 1983, and the month of our Lord, December, what Wong doings was Wong doing? Well, as often happens in the chilly northeast winter, Wong decided he would like to go get some sun. Also a, you know, lifelong student of uh, various martial arts, he thought, hey, let's change it up and I'm going to go to Brazil Ooh. and train some jiu-jitsu. So he went and uh, Steve was like, Wong, I see you've packed some bags. Where are we going? I said, like, oh, shit. OK. So he brought Steve. They went to Rio. You know, Wong was pretty focused doing his thing, learning, meeting some new people, having a good old time. And uh, Steve, you know, put on his Hawaiian shirt and his sunglasses and his uh, sunscreen, probably some Zinka on his nose. Probably. Hit Copacabana and and the beaches and uh, was just doing it up big with the Caparinas. Maybe a little too big. Wong had to go basically fish him out of a place where he had bottomed out and uh, brought him back. And he was just mumbling incoherently something about victory, beautiful victory for the mantle. (laughs) Wong's like, dude, you're not making a lick of sense. They flew back home, and a few weeks later, Wong was reading the paper and learned that the trophy that the Brazilian soccer team had won in 1970 and had been residing in their soccer hall of fame for the World Cup had gone missing. Oh, no. And realized that it was 14-carat gold-plated sterling silver underneath base of lapis lazuli, weighed about eight pounds, about a foot and a half tall, sculpture of uh, Nike, the goddess of victory, sitting on the mantelpiece in Steve's study. Oh, my. A drunken rapscallion. So, the article did conclude that, you know, it was believed that the, uh, the statue had been melted down and sold, and nobody had ever recovered it. Oh. But, now we know. You know who I was pissed off about that? Hmm. Pele. Oh, probably. Was he on that team? Was yeah. that when Pele was a thing? I, I would think so, yeah. He was playing in the 70s, I think. It's my understanding. He was pretty good at soccer. I've heard that, too. Mm. Well, that may be one thing that Steve was up to. But that was not the only sports-related activity that Steve was up to. Oh, boy. The other thing that Steve was doing was trying to get his new Broadway play that he was writing... Fred Bassett, (laughs) with an exclamation point at the end, off the ground. He had put together a script. It was not a good script, but he kept practicing his lines for it, because he was sure this was going to be the next Broadway hit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was all in on this. He was going to play Fred Bassett. A singing role? Oh, yeah. (laughs) He could remember the songs okay, Uh but for the book, like, the, the... the lines that he had to learn for it, he was just having a heck of a time trying to remember them. So he constantly had Wong reading lines with him. And Wong was trying his best. But not only was this, frankly, not a great script that he was working with, but Steve kept forgetting his lines. Very frustrating. Mm. Now, parallel to that happening, Steve was at the time under constant surveillance by Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. They, as we learn in this issue, are keeping track of everyone in the superhero community. They're trying to build their own superheroes. Factions of them are trying to build superheroes that will destroy every other superhero. So the Sanctum Sanctimonious is constantly wiretapped. But Steve's magical defense systems cause some of the reception that they get to be a little bit spotty. So the feds, in the form of S.H.I.E.L.D. agents, are listening in on Steve's conversations as he is running lines 
for Fred Bassett the Musical. Steve's going like, Ahem, I am a Bassett hound named Fred, and I say, oh, Wong line. <laughs> and Wong is like, Arf. The line is Arf. And Steve's like, yes, Alf. It's like, no, Steve, it's Arf. He's like, oh, yes, Arf. Quite, quite. Let, let me take that from the top. And Wong is just at the end of his rope at this point. And he's like, Steve, Steve, how are you going to get this Fred Bassett musical off the ground if you keep blowing lines? And what the feds heard from that was, Steve, how keeps blowing lines? <laughs> and that is why Major League pitcher Steve Howe was suspended for one year from Major League Baseball for cocaine abuse. Because uh, obviously the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents thought that he was hanging out in the Sanctum Sanctimonious blowing lines of cocaine with Steve and Wong. Oh, boy. I mean, to be fair, Steve Howe was doing a lot of cocaine at the time. Sure. Just not in the Sanctum. Yeah. But those are the Wong doings that Wong was doing in December of 1983 accidentally getting Steve Howe in trouble for his cocaine abuse. And accidentally setting up a situation where Steve Strange stole the World Cup trophy. What a month. What a month. I will say silver lining to this, that Fred Bassett musical never got off the ground. Oh, thank God for that. You know what's interesting mm. is in recent Doctor Strange comics, he has a ghost dog who is a Bassett hound. Strange? Indeed. Well, Corey, thank you so much for joining me and talking about this comic book. I think we probably talked about this comic book some in there. I think so. Good job. Thank you. You're welcome. Next week, it is my understanding that you'll be off getting lost in another dimension or something, probably. One can hope. Other dimension sounds pretty good right now. Yep. In your stead, we are lucky enough to be joined by the delightful Sarah Century, who will help us learn about the Iceman miniseries by... J.M. DeMatteis. The art in that is also by Alan Cooperberg, so ties into what we've been covering recently nicely and will help us learn about one of our new defenders. One of our new new defenders, I should say. Mm. 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 Mm -hmm. I miss the Hulk. Yeah, me too. That's why I did that noise. No, I, I could tell. Okay, good. Yeah. In the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, we can be reached at Tighten up the defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can also be reached electronically. Can you imagine such a thing? At ttwasteland at gmail.com. We're also up on some socials media, so you can check us out on Twitter or Facebook or Tumblr. We're all up in many nooks and crannies that the internet has to offer, like a delicious English muffin. Just letting that e-butter drip all over it. Mmm, not at all creepy. Don't know why Corey's making that face. <laughs> Perfectly normal and non-creepy metaphor that I've used. Good job. But hey, if you can't find us there, there is one more place you can look, and that's deep inside your heart. Corey, what are you going to be doing in people's hearts this week? I don't like soccer, I'll admit it, but I'm going to give it a try. I'm going to kick back, I'm going to drink a Caprinia and... Take a look at that World Cup trophy. Okay. <laughs> it's on the mantelpiece in your hearts, listeners. 
Very nice. So by appreciating soccer, you just you're gonna try to appreciate the sport by just looking at its trophy from fifty years ago. No, I'm gonna watch a game. Okay, and uh, uh, in the presence of the trophy, drinking, oh, a, drinking very a nice drink. What kind of drink? Uh, Caprina. So what's that? I don't know how you pronounce it. Kashaka. It's like a sugarcane type liquor that's a little bit like rum, but a little bit rougher. Oh, is that that stuff that you brought back? That was Zamir, right? Oh, yeah. No, that's a that's a different kind of aguardiente, which is also a sugarcane based. It's yeah, it's not super refined, but you mix that with some sugar and some lime juice and some mint and smash it up. Kind of like a mojito. Hmm. That sounds pretty good. Yeah. Care to join me? I'll join you for the drink. I think I'll probably uh, give soccer a miss. I have difficulty watching fast-paced, low-scoring sports games on TV. I can watch them in person, but for, like, soccer or hockey, like I said, really enjoy them as live events, but have difficulty getting invested in them on television. Yep. So I think while you are doing that, I am going to be sorting through the, I don't know, 4,500 new comics that I just had dropped off unexpectedly in my garage. I showed them to you before we started recording. An old friend texted me a couple weeks ago and mentioned that a little over a decade ago, they had gifted their comic collection to their niece, and now she was moving across country and getting rid of them, and would I like them? And I thought, sure, because hey, free comics. Right. I was expecting like a couple of shoeboxes full of comics, maybe a long box or two. This morning, I had 14 and a half long boxes of comics dropped off. They're in my garage. I need to slash get to go through them and collate them and figure out what's there and do an inventory and then read them all. Corey, I'm so excited. It is a literal truckload of comic books. It was. They filled up the bed of a pickup truck that dropped them off. I was so glad that I cleaned out my garage last weekend. Yeah, I'm like equal parts envious and also relieved that this is not my situation it is a lot to deal with but it is also i i really am just very excited about it i can tell so yeah that's what i'm going to be doing i think i might make some unboxing videos i've never made one of those before but i think i'm going to post those on patreon which brings me to the point that we have a patreon so if you would like to support the show you can visit us on patreon and if you do you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material that is exclusive to our donors There is the podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W, because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That is the Howard the Duck podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa. There is also a bevy of videos that I have made that are reviews of classic comic books. And like I said, I think I might do some videos where I just go through each of the boxes and see what's in them. Your Patreon donations are a big part of what makes it possible for us to keep doing the show. So. Thank you so much for donating and making it possible for us to keep doing the show. Corey, if people would like to support the show in a non-financial way, you got any idea how they might go about that? I got some thoughts. Okay, what are those thoughts? One thought is, um, oh yeah, reviews. Sure. So wherever you got your podcast from, you can probably click the review button. Oh, I thought you were saying that they could stage and perform a musical review. Like the Fred Bassett musical. Well, that's the... Uh, hold on, hold Oh, horses. okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Okay. Didn't mean to interrupt. So, first part is leaving a review where you got the podcast from. You can uh-huh. uh, click, a, there's probably a thing with some stars. You can click a bunch of them. Yeah, and say uh, something. all of them. Yeah, uh, and then, yeah, just say something like, I clicked all the stars because this show warmed the cockles of my heart. 
It's a very good review. Thank you. And then, yeah, the other thing, I was going to say you could talk to people about the show, but if you want to talk to people in the form of doing some sort of a stage production... You could sing to people about the show. You know what? Go for it. Do it up. Get your good pal Gary Trudeau to write the uh, book and lyrics for you. Because he's the guy oh, who wrote it for uh, Doonesbury. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh-huh. the Doonesbury musical, not the Fred Bassett musical. No. Wouldn't it be something if Gary Trudeau wrote the Fred Bassett musical? Well, yeah. I told you how that uh, Doonesbury musical starred the guy from Perfect Strangers, Cousin Larry. Right. I saw a movie that he was in the other day. Larry Appleton. Yeah, my favorite year, Mark Lynn Baker played the stand-in for Mel Brooks in that. Okay. Pretty fun. All right. Had Peter O'Toole. Wow. He played a drunk. Can you imagine? What? I know. Anyway, thanks again for joining me, Corey. You're welcome. And until next week, these hamburger sandwiches are a bit strong for you. Oh, man, that's good. Dungarees. Past the liniment. It's going to rip your balls off. They don't say that. Old people don't say that. Don't they? None that I've met. Some old people. Cronus from Venom is an old person now. Yeah, that's true. So he probably says that. Okay. He probably says, These next dungarees are going to rip your balls off. They're called hamburger sandwiches. Did you realize that Beast ate as many hamburger sandwiches in this issue as Shaft ate hot dogs? Oh my god, I did not. Like, he wasn't even paying attention either. Shit. Seven. I like Beast better now. Bye. Bye. (laughs) And they knew it. feeling that manhattan it's pretty good <laughs> it turned you into a one-man herb alpert well herb was alpert the... was the one-man herb alpert yeah I a one-man gonna... tijuana brass yeah hmm. maybe with a esquivel's band also oh wow high praise indeed oh you got those those things in there <laughs> thank you i gotta say one-man tijuana brass sounds like it's a filthy euphemism <laughs> <laughs>